Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Paul Gowder, Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law. We will discuss his article, Reconstituting We the People, Frederick Douglass and Jürgen Habermas in Conversation, which will be published in the Northwestern University Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I really, I'm not a constitutional theorist or a constitutional law scholar, but, you know, I, I always enjoy reading this work because it's, you know, so um, provocative and, you know, really helps us think about uh, sort of the, the politics of, of our country and how we should conceptualize our, our relationship to them. Um, and, and, and your paper really draws on a lot of different themes in really fundamental uh, questions in constitutional law. So I, I, I thought we could start by providing some sort of groundwork for people in thinking about, you know, how you're thinking about, about constitutional theory and its intersection with democratic theory and how both of those should be informed by intellectual history. So, so I was wondering if you could start by talking a little bit about, uh, what you refer to as kind of conventional constitutional theory. Like, what does it assume the legitimacy of the Constitution depends on? Yeah, so, I mean, in, a, in an interesting way, I feel like I'm not really a constitutional theorist either. I'm sort of a, a political theorist that happens to be a lawyer, and sooner or later that turns you into a constitutional theorist. I mean, by which I mean there's we can sort of think of what 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 I like to call sometimes high church constitutional theory. You know, it's not actually conducted in Latin, but maybe it ought to be. Um, <laughs> and it's really, it's really obsessed with legitimacy. And so when I think of the territory of high church constitutional theory, I think, you know, first and foremost of longstanding issues like the kind of majoritarian difficulty and more generally just this baseline question of what is it that the Constitution has to be for it to be right for us to rule ourselves by it, right? I mean, we, we know, you know, dead white men, slaveholders, you know, a very little relationship, at least in an obvious sense, to the people of today or to contemporary values. And so the work of constitutional theory has been to try and draw a bridge between that thing that we think of as our constitution and some kind of reasons for ruling ourselves today. And so I interpret that really as a question about popular sovereignty. That is, as a question about what is it that constitutes self-rule. You know, I take it that the first criterion of democratic legitimation is that in some sense the people have to be genuinely ruling themselves. And so the first part of this paper is in part directed against this sort of more, in a lot of ways, more directed against a kind of conventional approach in democratic theory that's leaked into constitutional theory, which is to suppose that ruling oneself in some sense means that some kind of popular will formation process has to unproblematically lead 
political outcomes, including institutional outcomes like constitution. And now we know that that's not true. We know that that's not true about our constitution. And we know that that's not true about constitutions in general. And so I'm trying to not ramble too much here. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, you know, suppose that we, we, we accept that empirically it's not the case that the, the, the that we're ever going to legitimate any kind of constitutional rule by saying, okay, here are some people. Those people are the people, the demos, and the demos exercised its constituent power and brought it about that there was a constitution, and therefore we're all self-ruling. You know, Rousseau basically just happened in the real world, and congratulations, we have a democratically legitimate constitutional form of government. What are we left with? And so what I think we're really, you know, the, the best response in constitutional theory so far to what we've been left with is really what I call this constitutional conception. I call it this constitutional conception because the idea is that it takes the vector of influence and reverses it in a certain, certain sense, or at least makes it bidirectional. So instead of supposing, okay, here's the demos, and the demos existed, and then the demos did a law, right? Like the demos did a lawmaking. And so we have laws. And great, that means we live under the rule of the demos. So we're democratic and everybody's happy. Um, this collection, I, mean, I think of um, primarily Habermas, um, Frank Michaelman, Celia Ben-Habib, um, Ackerman, Post and Siegel, um, just this collection of scholars mostly working um, in this light vein of thought in the late 90s, early 2000s, really developed this broad idea of constitutionalism as dialogue, as instead of like, okay, here's some point in time where the demos did a law, that each generation has a participatory role in shaping our idea of what constitutional law is. And so the act of self-ruling through constitution-making is extended over time. The conception of the people is extended over time. And if that works, and, you know, there's a lot of questions about whether it might work, but if that works, then it resolves some of these classic political theory-type problems about constituent power. It resolves some of these counter-majoritarian problems because the question is no longer, like, why are we being bossed around by this dead, these dead people? The question becomes, how is it that we and the dead people are collectively engaging in a process of self-rule that extends over time? Yeah. No, and so so one of the things I thought was really interesting for me about your paper and that I think is maybe kind of taken is sort of part and parcel of political theory but maybe not as familiar to people who primarily think about the constitution and constitutionalism from a primarily legal perspective are some of the sort of um 
the contradictions in the conventional theory that that you point to as kind of indications or kind of the reasons why it can't work in the relevant political theory sense and it it seemed to me that like on one level some of them some of those problems were like constitutive in the sense that there was sort of like an internal contradiction and then some related to legitimacy like you know why should we continue to give legitimacy to this particular set of uh, this particular document or particular conception. And I think it might be helpful for people if you sort of just briefly highlighted those those two kind of categories of problems so people understand why this alternative conception is a better or more productive way of thinking about constitutionalism. Yeah, so I, mean, I think yeah, very broadly. Um, so when you talk about the conceptual um, problems, I mean, I think the conventional way that political theorists have talked about this, and this is really more familiar to the continental tradition of political philosophy than to the um, Anglo-American tradition, which is actually a little uncomfortable for me because I'm much more in the analytic tradition. Um, But as this idea of the constituent power, and so very roughly speaking, the idea is this, right? So if we think that the sort of fundamental law of a state the constitution or whatnot has to be created by its people in order to legitimate it. Well, the problem is that the people itself is, in a sense, a corporate body. Um, the people itself is created in part by these legal acts, right? So when the constitution is created, the constitution, even in the sort of most banal sense in the U.S., determines the terms of its own ratification, Right, like the Constitution says, you know, here's who has to agree with this to be ratified. The Constitution, or at least some sort of, some, maybe in the case of the U.S. pre-existing legal act with respect to the Articles of Confederation, but some legal act defines who the people are in the first place, defines who's in, who's out. And where do you legitimate that legal act? if you've just said that you need the people in order to legitimate a legal act in the first place. So that's the sort of core conceptual problem with this sort of conventional people-generating laws theory of constitutionalism. Um, The co-practical problem actually was most famously identified by David Hume um, in his critique of social contract theory, which is that this is never actually happened. Um, (laughs) Like, practically speaking, almost every, I mean, every country in the world, democratic or otherwise, has been created as a product of some kind of usurpation or colonialism or usurpation and colonialism. Um, You know, every legal framework in the world has featured unjustified exclusions from its framing process, continues to feature unjustified exclusions and or just flat out like ineffective use of the political process. I mean, you know, look at the current state of affairs in the United States right now, even as we speak, where it's really hard to justify on a sort of 
conventional people generate the outcomes theory of democratic legitimacy, even day-to-day outcomes like presidents that lose the popular vote. Um, and so I think that it's, for, and yeah, so, so I mean, that, that's essentially the practical problem. And it's, again, this is something that has been identified for a very long time, right? So Hume identified it um, recently, actually really like um, Jason Brennan, a philosopher at Georgetown Business School, mm. has written a book called Against Democracy that just, you know, spends pages and pages <laughs> beating on democratic people for being completely incapable of generating decisions that look like they track either what their preferences actually are or what their rational preferences would be. I, I just think for the, from the beginning through day-to-day political outcomes, we don't have a whole lot of reason to believe that what people are doing uh, is deciding, okay, this is how I want to rule myself. Let me pull the levers to bring it about that that's the case. So you suggest that what you, the kind of the collection of theories that you refer to as the constitutional conception can resolve some of those problems or contradictions, but is also vulnerable to some potential problems itself. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about those in turn. So like, what does it do to solve some of the problems with the more kind of mechanical theory of constitutionalism that we've sort of inherited as lawyers? And what do you see as the potential weaknesses? Yeah. So the resolution in the simplest terms, um, I think is just about introducing that dialogic conception. In other words, suppose, and, and, and you know, this is, this is a, sort of effectively a normative claim that somebody might disagree with. But, you know, the real question is, do you find it appealing? So, you know, I think I at least find appealing the notion that what democratic self-rule really means is I'm born into a society And in that society, you know, I come to experience certain kinds of values imminently in my environment, right? Like that's my society seems to be oriented toward those values. Those values have a kind of baseline acceptability. It sort of looks like what my institutions are doing is they're kind of striving to achieve those values, you know, those values are part of the political culture. And so what I do is I work within my political process because I come to endorse those values over time. I work to try and bring it about that my society better institutionalizes those values. And so, you know, as a member of this kind of community of value, I can, number one, identify with even very different, you know, groups of people constituted in different ways that are part of the same political community over time. You know, I can look and I can see, even though Thomas Jefferson was an evil slaveholding bastard, nonetheless, 
some of the stuff that he said, some of the aspirations that he wrote into the Declaration of Independence, some of the aspirations that that, that Alexander Hamilton, even though he was a sort of vicious capitalist monarchist, um, wrote (laughs) into the Constitution. I can see those as values that we've developed over time that I've in part been raised under. There's actually um, a really interesting piece of, of all things, Plato's Crito, where um, Socrates, you know, is contemplating um, fleeing this, his death sentence, you know, fleeing the city, and he imagines the laws coming to him. And one of the things that the laws say to him is, you know, how dare you do that, you know, such ingratitude, when we raised you. Um, And so if I can see myself as a person who's raised under those laws and who's a participant in an overall project to rule ourselves under these laws, then I don't find myself compelled to demand that the laws be perfected or even perfectly justified by a sort of, you know, top-down democratic process from the start, nor do I find myself nor do I find myself compelled to think that my particular interpretation of that shared scheme of values that we've had throughout or that we've been working on collectively throughout our history is something that has to be resolved even in the present, according to my perspective or my preferred conception of the values. You know, nor do I think that, you know, even if I have to think that even if our institutions break down in the short term, that that means that this overall collection of value isn't still something that we're collectively pursuing. As long as the process exists, as long as there's some evidence that I can draw on to think that my participation in the development of the scheme of overall value is something that can be taken into account by my fellow citizens and can potentially influence the law. And as long as I can think that I have reason to be attached to this distinctive conception of value, I can see myself as a constitution maker. And if I can see myself as a constitution maker, then, and if everybody else can see themselves as a constitution maker, then they can understand our constitutional method of self-rule as legitimated, notwithstanding the constituent power problem, notwithstanding all of these practical problems in terms of getting day-to-day political outcomes, as opposed to overall pursuits of a collective conception of political good um, carried out on a day-to-day basis. Um, So that's what I think, and so that's really what I think folks like Habermas, you know, Michael Mun, Ben Habib, Ackerman, and so forth were getting at Mm. with their various interventions into constitutional theory in that time period. Um, but I also think that, so, so that, that's sort of part one. Um, part two, I also think that this assumes that we can genuinely coherently talk about everyone in 
the political community extending over time, actually genuinely being in some meaningful sense subjects of the constitutional system. Now, it's if there are discrete radical exclusions, if there are people as to whom, and I, I think of this, and I haven't fleshed this out fully in the paper. Um, this is sort of something that really is going to have to go into the book um, mm. that hopefully will happen one of these days. But um, I think of this sort of primarily in, ex- in an expressive sense. If there are people who cannot interpret the existing legal regime um, as an order that accepts them as members of this community of constitution creators, then this theory can't work, right? Because then there are people in the society who have the following objection. The objection is, hey, wait a minute. You say that we can all rule ourselves with respect to this ongoing scheme of value that's been developed over time and is under continual development. But some of us are treated as non-citizens by this alleged scheme of value. Some of us are treated either as subordinates to be ordered about or excluded from full and equal participation in this overall conversation, or more likely both. Both, And so we can't understand ourselves as co-creators of the Constitution, which means we still have this underlying objection, namely, why is it that you people, the fully included, get to rule us? using this this alleged ongoing scheme of value, which we don't get to partake in. Yeah. I mean, if I may, it, I mean, it seems like <clears throat> the criticism of the conventional theory is that, you know, it posits that everyone's included from the get-go, and that's just not true. And in some ways, like, the fix is that we can sort of include retroactively people in the constitutional conversation, even if they weren't part of that conversation initially. But the sort of the the sort of Achilles heel of that is that you actually have to do it. Yeah, and the other Achilles heel is, I mean, it may just be that it's never that simple. And part of the reason it's never that simple is because exclusions linger, right? I mean, the the United States is such a good example of that. Because, you know, heaven knows that the United States has made progress with respect to the treatment of black people. I mean, you know, Jim Crow, better than slavery, right? Mass incarceration, better than Jim Crow. But both Jim Crow and mass incarceration also show that you can't just suddenly decide, hey, guess what? Now you're included in the, in the polis. Like, now you're part of the demos. Everything's fixed. Um, it turns out that the extreme exclusions tend to propagate themselves. Yeah. And in in your paper, you talk about how this kind of constitutional conception really needs to wrestle with that form of exclusion and how African-American political thought, and you specifically refer to to Frederick Douglass, but, but draw on other thinkers as well, is like, 
reflects a history of making that point over and over again, it it seems like. I was wondering if you could talk about that and maybe give some examples of, you know, how African American thinkers have pointed to that weakness and like indicated the kind of kind of constitutional political changes that need to happen in order for this to be meaningfully constitutional. Yeah, so I, I lead with Douglas. I really make Douglas the centerpiece of this because Douglas actually sort of had a, a, a really significant change of his own views. And so Douglas, um, you know, originally was aligned with the Garrisonians who were um, of the opinion that, you know, in slavery there was nothing to be saved from the Constitution, that the Constitution was just a profoundly corrupt document. It was had sort of slavery shot through the whole thing. And so the only way to get out of the slave state was to take the whole thing, light it on fire, and come up with something new. And so Douglas, as I said, started out with that viewpoint. He actually went into exile, um, you know, to avoid the South, basically. Um, And so when he was abroad, he came to this kind of sea change in his opinion, where he started arguing that actually the Constitution was a kind of moral as well as practical political resource that could be used for political change. And what is what I call, um, I, I, I don't know if I coined the term or not, but I certainly am using the term claimant critique. And so the idea of claimant critique is that, you know, philosophers talk about this idea of internal critique, um, the notion that a member of a social institution or just, you know, a person, um, you know, maybe an abstracted arguer from the standpoint of a social institution or a way of thought can criticize an institution from within its own presuppositions. And so for me, this idea of claimant critique is that an excluded person or an excluded group can stand outside of a social institution, can say, hey, these values that you assert, the proper understanding of those values, the understanding of those values that completes them, um, that understanding includes me. And this is a strain. So um, actually, Bernard Boxhill um, wrote a really influential paper. What is it called? Um, Something like Two Schools of African-American Philosophy. Something Mm. along those times. It starts with two, and it's about um, schools of black political thought. Um, But the idea is that there's been both this, uh, there's been this, assimilationist tradition and there's been the separatist tradition. There's been the, you know, it's time for us to get out of here and, you know, go create a colony somewhere where, Mm. like, you know, or or just, you know, become black nationalists and start a revolution. And then there's been the, hey, wait a minute, if the people of this country took these values seriously that they assert, you know, all men are created equal. What does that mean? Right. If they took these values seriously, 
those values would be a worth having and b would include us mm-hmm. and so the school of thought has been the school of thought the sort of starting with douglas that has been like hey take these values seriously and taking these values seriously means that you know this has been a genuine practical program of political action as well because it's meant that even the excluded even slaves even douglas has a reason to endorse the constitution to say it's good or it would be good for america to live under the constitution but it's a conditional endorsement it's an endorsement that says okay it would be good for america to live under the constitution if america actually lived under it properly understood mm. and so that, that that conditional part is where i think it solves the problems of the constitutional conception in other words the sort of idealized citizen of the constitutional conception thinks okay i'm a member of this community we're working together over time to fill out these values and we rule ourselves under them whereas the conditional endorser from the tradition starting with Douglas says hey i'm not a member of this community right now this constitution is not legitimate with respect to me it is not legitimate you know it is not right to rule me under this constitution because i am excluded however that doesn't mean that we should light the constitution on fire we can actually understand the constitution as valuable and we should rebuild the constitution and rebuild the underlying notion of the people in order to allow its values to be genuinely achieved and so it's a kind of endorsement without legitimacy mhm mhm yeah i mean i i, I need it sorry i i really like the phrase that you used um cynical faith to describe that kind of political rhetorical move because it really captured something sort of profound about what people were trying to accomplish to me. Yeah, I mean I I think the you know, the example actually that Dorothy Roberts gives of the Black Panthers I cite her in the paper um is probably the most compelling to me as an example of cynical faith, right? So the Panthers you know it turns out would you know go and surround police who were engaging in some, you know brutal racist repression with law books right and so you know they they would say as you know hey you know hey pig like here's your law book you know tell us how you're obeying this here's the, here are the laws that you're violating right and so we think it but, but that's really striking right because we think of the black panthers as the sort of quintessential separatist group we think of the black panthers as the group that you know stands for the proposition okay this this society is so poisoned that the only thing that we can do is take up arms and be ready to shoot back at the police but even in that position of the black panthers there's still a hey wait a minute if you actually followed these laws out to their natural conclusion that you claim to be following we don't think you ever will but if you did 
they might actually be a little bit less unjust. And so we're going to, even in the course of our armed resistance, demand that you follow these laws and try and live up to something like the scheme of value they articulate. Yeah, no, and I really thought you offer a bunch of examples in that third part of the paper, all of which were really just incredibly fascinating. And I, I, I can't recommend more strongly that people people check out the paper and, and hopefully the book in in the future. And I was wondering, Paul, if in closing, you could talk a little bit about how this kind of framework for thinking about the legitimacy of a constitution might inflect how, you know, we talk about the current political moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, the current political moment is a rough one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Right. But I mean, I think so. One of the things, and so this is another lesson that we get from black history, right? Is that, you know, progress tends to be met with backlash. Um, and in a lot of ways, right, the backlash can kind of be seen as part of the process, um, what, what, by which I mean that, you know, so there's sort of progress and that progress is really sort of educational in a sense. It's solidarity building. You know, the goal or the sort of the thing that excluded communities, and I here don't just mean African-Americans, but I mean all excluded communities, get from social political progress from inclusion from the movement from you know the end of Jim Crow to something else isn't well you know look that means that our gains are solidified look that means that um we've achieved something and now we get to hold on to it and there's no way that the shifting political winds can change that because that's just not true i mean we've seen throughout american history that and i think again particularly saliently in black american history that um the successes of movements for inclusion, democracy, and justice get rolled back, um, get backlashed away. You know, slavery comes back in a different form. Then Jim Crow comes back in a different form. But that the victories nonetheless have an internal educative function, an internal solidarity building function. They teach both people within and people without the excluded groups, some more of the vision of what a genuinely inclusive society might look like. It brings our sort of, it brings our horizons forward. It provides the people in excluded groups something more to organize around. Um, and so it's really, I, I like to think of, of stolen progress as, epistemic progress rather than some sort of, you know, new game theoretic equilibrium that can't be taken away. Wow. Yeah. Well, Paul, thanks so much for, for talking with me today about your paper. And I, I really hope people will check it out. And I look forward to your work on this subject in the future. Thank you so much. Like I said, hopefully there's a book coming out of this at some point, but it might be a while. <laughs> <laughs>
the streets of the Harlems of the world, the black Harlems and the white Harlems. People are depressed. They are frustrated. They are downtrodden. They see no hope. They see no tomorrows. And I say to them always, keep the faith, baby. I say this because all over the world, people are not receiving God. They're not getting the assurances that once were given. Promises have been broken and their dawn refuses to rise. They're walking in the midnights of sorrow, in the midnight of frustration, in the midnight of despair. Too long have they been promised the good life by the great white fathers. Too long have they waited in vain, black and white, poor and illiterate, for the better jobs, better housing, better education, better hospitals. Yet the conditions have not changed. Except for those who have always lived in the penthouses, for the people who live in the basements, in the cellar, their lives are still drab, ugly, have no hope. And I say to them, keep the faith, baby. Keep the faith! Because God's realities always exceed man's fondest dreams. Keep faith in God, whoever your God is. Keep the faith in whatever God you believe in. Keep the faith. He'll take care of things. He'll make a way out of no way. He'll open doors that no one can open and shut doors that no one can shut. And it won't be long before he proves it too. Keep the faith in yourself. You may be small to your oppressors, but you're bigger in your self-respect as a human being because as a human being, nobody is better than you are. All human beings, black and white, rich and poor, equal in the sight of God. Keep your faith in the life of your fellow man even though he abuses you. When he abuses you, he makes himself a lesser man. Ah, great man once said, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray. 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 Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Keep your faith. Keep your faith because one day, black and white, Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic, rich and poor, are going to walk the face of this earth with joyful hearts, happy in the togetherness of brotherhood. And the masses are going to run this world. The big man's day is gone. Not only because it is any man's world, but it's also and always has been and always will be God's world. Keep the faith. Keep the faith, baby. Oh, for a faith that will not shrink. 
Though pressed by any foe, that will not tremble upon the brink of any earthly woe. Keep your faith, baby. Walk together, talk together, love together, worship together, live together, and we'll win tomorrow. Because God has no other hands than our hands. He has no other feet than our feet. And he has no other tongue than our tongue. Keep the faith. Keep the faith, baby.